Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we meet the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, to hear about plans to improve safety in the city. I think the police, the government, myself, got to address that issue. But at the same time, we've got to do what we can to make meaningful change now. And so hoping to have a good news announcement in the next couple of weeks, because I understand uh, why Londoners, particularly women and girls, want the night tube back. Plus, we head to the Slovenian capital to hear how a sugar factory turned art gallery is hoping to add some sweetness to the cultural lives of its residents. You get the feeling that the Chukrana gallery hasn't quite worked out what it wants to be yet, but its very existence is bringing life back to this part of the river. And it certainly helps to have an extremely attractive cafe bar adjacent to the courtyard with a stage for performances. This should be a great addition to Ljubljana's collection of performance venues. All that and much, much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. First up, Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller fills us in on what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. Here he is with this week's What We Learned. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, looks like we got us a convoy. We learned this week that spending years embroiled in what has essentially been a protracted and rancorous row about how little your country likes foreigners does not, in fact, encourage foreigners to lend a hand when you need them to. And I think you know which clip we need here. No. Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Coming over here, providing the chorus on our whimsical news monologues and so on. The UK has been learning in recent weeks of the practical upshot of a post-Brexit lack of people available to drive big trucks, i.e. a lack of certain commodities on supermarket shelves and in petrol pumps. But we learned that our Prime Minister had a plan. Well, quite. We learned that temporary visas were to be offered to 5,000 lucky foreign haulage drivers, well short of the 100,000 that haulage industry organisations claim the UK needs, but better than nothing. Except, we learned, not much better. The total number of applications received for visas to drive fuel tankers is, as of this broadcast, 27. Happy as ever to help, mind you, we learned some while ago of the identity of the hero who genuinely can help Britain in this its hour of need. His name is Mick Humphreys, and we learned of his works several summers back while watching local television in the Australian settlement of Wagga Wagga, on which was broadcast the greatest advertising jingle of all time. Mick Humphreys can teach you to drive a big truck, big truck. So we've learned that really the UK only needs to issue one visa just as soon as Australia lets its citizens leave the country again. We have also learned that, once heard, you will find yourself involuntarily humming that tune for the rest of your goddamn life, but a hearty sing-along will pass the time while you're queuing for petrol. There is also a dance routine of sorts. Look it up. Anyway.
We learned of a couple of important developments pertaining to the final frontier, and we know that between that reference and the background music we have conflated Star Wars and Star Trek. Don't write in, we don't care. We learned that Russia, which as the USSR put the first object, dog, man and woman in space, intends to make the first film in space, dispatching director Klim Shipenko and actor Yulia Parasild to the International Space Station to commence shooting a dreadful-sounding thriller called The Challenge. Actually, maybe this sounds better in Russian, for which, over to our Russia desk chief, Paige Reynolds. No, это вызов. Actually, no, not really. While this whimsical news monologue is wholeheartedly and full-throatedly in favour of launching actors into orbit, if less so about bringing them back, we'll freely admit to having set this story up in the hope of nailing some sort of punchline about film stars, but in what might at least work as an eerie foreshadowing of this movie they're making, it doesn't seem to have been worth the effort. Appreciate the thought. There it is. For we learned that it is not only the Russians whose forays heavenward are becoming very arguably undignified. We learned that the recently instituted sixth branch of the US military, Space Force, is having difficulties with trousers. Space Force, you'll recall, is a legacy of former US President Donald Trump and has already drawn much mockery for uniforms which look to have been purchased en masse from an online bootlegger of Battlestar Galactica costumes. And yes, we know we've mixed up the music and the series again. We still don't care. A special criticism was made of the Space Force uniform trousers, which were baggy, bunched and made the wearer look regrettably like they'd put them on backwards. But we learned that alterations are imminent, and we learned this from the Twitter account of Space Force in a bulletin which will now be narrated by Monocle24's Space Force desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. We heard your feedback. New pants, new fit, yes, coming soon. So we learned that, and we think this will land, while you can't hear anyone scream in space, you can hear feedback. And yes, we know, we've just shoehorned an Aliens reference in there as well. We still don't care. And back here on Earth, we learned of the restoration of an ursine crown. Fat Bear Week, the self-explanatory contest held annually in Alaska's Katmai National Park, was decided in favour of a brown bear called 480 Otis. Otis, believed to tip the scales at north of 450 kilograms, had won three times previously, but not since 2017. Big pause. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. Always a fun listen. We were just hearing about a movie production that is going to be out of this world. So it's only fitting that we hear from an Academy-nominated composer, Nax, here on The Curator. I Could Be Your Dog is an album by the Oscar-nominated composer Emily Mosseri and critically acclaimed electronica artist Caitlin Aurelia Smith. The duo got to know each other just before the pandemic hit and during a long period of being stuck at home started sending each other musical ideas. The result is a short but cinematic record that blends Smith's lush and rhythmic synth work with Mosseri's romantic scores. It's the first of two albums the pair have made together, without being in the same room. The second will come out next year, called I Could Be Your Moon.
Emily Mosseri and Kathleen O'Reilly Smith spoke to producer Holly Fisher about their collaboration on this week's Monaco on Culture. Caitlin reached out and we both were aware that we lived in the same city and we planned on hanging out and I think a year or so went by before we actually did it. Um, and we started hanging, we went on a few walks together and then we kind of became fast friends and then she left LA and I feel like uh, this collaboration sort of was a way for us to sort of continue our friendship and yeah, it was kind of a, a creative lifeline and, and vibe replenisher throughout the pandemic because it was right in the belly of the beast of the pandemic. We talked on the phone a lot. We kind of came up with the process plan a little bit before I left. So while we were in person, we talked about some things that we wanted to explore. And then we each just started putting together some ideas, some like rough ideas, and then sent each other tracks, like some, some like themes to expand on and then we just kept on passing it back and forth and talking on the phone i don't think we've ever been in the same room we've never been in the same room <laughs> we've been outdoors walking around together but we've actually never been in a room together which is crazy yeah we've hardly hung out without masks on. I feel like I've seen your face in person without a mask for less than five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like for less than five seconds, it was like just yeah. <laughs> sh like really quick showing each other, each other's faces and then, and then putting on our masks. I remember I, had, I was really proud of the mask I had it on at the time. It was really sparkly. Yeah, it's a really good one. Do you think that if you created something in the same room that it would be different from what you create from afar though? I think so. Cause I feel like anytime that there's like the, a new presence, like even when I have the presence of my cat in the room, when I'm creating, <laughs> it comes out differently. Like I'm always responding to the environment around me. And so I think it would be a, a very different experience because when you do it, remotely then like you you get that time for things to to soak in and you get that experience of your first reaction to hearing something and you get the experience of letting it soak in for a few days because sometimes we would take you know days or weeks to respond to each other And a lot of these song titles are kind of about being a part of someone else, like um, Log in Your Fire or I Could Be Your Dog. Was that a conscious decision or were you kind of naturally drawn to exploring ideas of connection during what's been quite an isolating year? The title of the, the prequel, I Could Be Your Dog, came naturally, but also then we, we found a thread in the process of of writing these songs and and naming them. I think you hit the nail on the head. It was this sort of isolating time. And this was a way for us to be connected and us to be connected musically and us to be connected with a new, like having a new friend during a time when we were confronted with such, you know, familiarity because it was, we were in our echo chambers of, of this sort of 
or loop patterns of the pandemic. I think one theme in this album too, lyrically and conceptually was the idea of surrender, you know, and that's another thread between like, I could be your dog or moon in your eye or log in your fire. Like the idea of just like surrendering to that and finding the thread. I mean, we didn't set out to write these lyrics or write these songs about it uh, like a, with a certain concept in mind, it just sort of naturally happened and we just went with it. There's a really short poem that a friend of mine wrote <laughs> that just says two things come together to make a third thing. <laughs> and that's how I hear it. It's just, it's kind of the the result of our two worlds colliding. I like that. Yeah. We, uh, two things come together. Is that the whole poem in its entirety? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that resonates with me. I think that it was more of like a conversation, like a musical conversation. And then it became something totally different, you know, like we were reacting to each other musically the way that you would in a conversation the conversation was just stretched out over space and time because we weren't, we worked on this record for a while and we also weren't in the same space. The two of you have done quite a lot of soundtracking work in both of your careers. And I wondered if having that experience was useful to this project, like having the experience of coming up with a set of tracks that sit together cohesively in a way that, I guess thematically, like in a way that a soundtrack does rather than an album might work. Because I just think the whole of this album hangs together so beautifully as one succinct body of work that it's almost impossible that it came from two different brains. Um, And I wonder if just having that experience of making soundtracks made that easier. I think I think that it did. I felt that way that um, I felt like it it was instead of collaborating with a visual collaborator or a visual artist like a director, it felt very cinematic in that way that like Caitlin's music is so incredibly cinematic and and visual to me and, and, and colorful and also like connected to it's so tangible. There's something very like connected to nature and, and, and the earth. Like there's something so grounded and tangible about her work, but also colorful and expansive that it felt like the melodies that I heard when she would send over some, some sonic badge or some piece of music, the melodies that I heard felt almost implied by what, what she created. Like I thought they were just, they were already in there. And I, the same way that, you know, sometimes you can be inspired by a film or a, or a scene or a visual sequence in a film that the melody is sort of already kind of already in there. You just kind of have to grab it. I felt like I had that experience with Caitlin on this. And so when you say that it was, it felt so um, cohesive or I forget the word you used, but that it, it was surprising that it came from two brains. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate compliment. That's the ultimate goal, I think. And just finally, what do you think you've taken from this process or learned from each other about your own creativity or your own music making process? We've talked a lot about this, actually, Caitlin and I, about like how, how different our styles are to, to like our approaches are to making music. And but 
but there's also a lot of similarities is the type of feeling you get from you know from the type of feeling i get from her music the type of feeling she got from my music before we actually met was you know was seems to be very aligned you know emotionally um but you know she caitlin has such a different approach to making music that i'm sort of in awe of because i you know i don't work with synthesizers in that way and um just her sort of approach i've learned a lot from that um it's hard to articulate but i think uh you learn from every, every experience you anytime you work with another artist and it works you learn you learn a great deal and you take that with you you know for the rest of your musical life and i think i'm grateful for that i feel like i've gotten that from this experience and it's hard to articulate how you know i think time will tell how that we've shaped each other musically you know moving forward but i think you take a piece with I, i'm a strong believer in that that you take a piece with you uh, of every project when it's when it when it actually clicks. Yeah, definitely. I feel like my my inspiration container got got like mega filled from the process because Emil is one of those musicians where it seems like he's like a waterfall of incredible melodies and like he just like opens his mouth and can sing perfectly and <laughs> just play like music just flows out of him so easily and and that's not my personal experience with making music. And so I felt really inspired by, by just seeing someone have that fluidity in their music making process. Well, I, I mean, it's all a testament to, to what inspires you, you know? So like what I said earlier, like it's really easy when you have something that's inspiring. Like most of, a lot of the ideas uh, were generated by you or originated with you with something that you created first and that unlocked these like melodies they were felt like they were implied or written like or, or just in the tapestry of the music and it's the same with film or, or another or when you're writing with another great artist or another songwriter that it it's only easy when you're working with something great um, yeah it's interesting it's really been a joy making this and I'm excited that it's out we're excited that it's out in the world the composer Emily Mosseri and electronica artist Caitlin Aurelia Smith speaking to our very own Holly Fisher for this week's edition of Monaco on Culture. Still to come here on The Curator, we hear how a string of Cuban baseball players recently defected during a tournament. We meet the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and we visit a sugar factory turned art gallery for something sweet. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are of the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Next, we turn to the latest installment of the Foreign Desk Explainer. Earlier this week, at least nine Cuban baseball players defected during a tournament in Mexico. Here, Andrew Muller reflects on history's most notable examples. 
Get that call, steps in, and he hits a deep Defecting seems like one of those things that people don't do anymore. It is, or so we might have thought, was, a behaviour associated with the Cold War, a decision by the citizen of one party to that conflict that they'd rather be a citizen of the other party to that conflict. Sometimes these were people who traded what they knew for a new life. For example, the Russian KGB archivist Vasily Mitrokin, who defected to the UK in 1992 with six trunks stuffed with secret documents. This very simple Russian was so disgusted with the evil and immoral regime under which he operated. Sometimes they were people who understood that their fame was a passport to freedom. In this category, we find the Romanian gymnast Nadia Komenich, the Russian ballet dancers Rudolf Nureyev and Mikhail Borishnikov, the Russian chess player Viktor Korchnoi. When I left the Soviet Union, I did it just for sake of my chess career. I was so squeezed in the Soviet Union, so it was the only chance for me to to prolong my chess life. Defections were not exclusively east to west. A few travelled in the opposite direction, whether out of ideological conviction or self-preserving expediency. A small cohort of British spies left for the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and 23 American prisoners and one British comrade chose to stay north of the border after the Korean War. So I made up my mind at dinner time when everyone was having lunch, I just grabbed a shotgun with about 10 rounds of ammunition and made for the DMZ. There is also the curious case of the former US Marine who defected to the Soviet Union in 1959, became vexed by the dullness of life as a lathe operator in a Minsk electronics factory, specifically noting in his diary the lack of nightclubs and bowling alleys, and returned to the US in 1962. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Such is the rich and peculiar tradition revived this week by Cuba's under-23 men's baseball team, at least nine of whom have taken advantage of their recent participation in a tournament in Mexico to decline the return flight. Sporting defections are another prominent category of the practice. Earlier this year, the Belarusian sprinter Kristina Tsimonoskaya defected via the Tokyo Olympics to Poland. And the Cuban baseballers have some obvious role models. Aroldis Chapman, pitcher with the New York Yankees, is a Cuban defector, as is Jose Abreu on first base for the Chicago White Sox, and they are far from alone in having fled the Castro Revolution for the major leagues. The up-and-coming Cuban star Cesar Prieto defected in May while in Florida with Cuba's senior men's baseball team. Bidding for his signature by American clubs is expected to be spectacular.
So it is entirely possible that this latest bunch of bat-waving defectors are acting principally in the interests of their own advancement. And fair enough, though the Cuban regime does not see it like that. Upon returning to Havana with the remains of the squad, the head of the Cuban Baseball Federation, Luis Daniel Del Risco, gave it plenty about the weakness of those who betrayed the collective commitment and those who did the unspeakable to demoralize us, among other of the more picturesque excuses ever offered for losing a bronze medal playoff. Here is, of course, another observance of the grand tradition of defection, the disparaging of the defectors by their aggrieved homeland as traitors, collaborators, sellouts, etc. Cold War defections were always prized by the West as propaganda triumphs and not unreasonably. It is never a good look for ideologically dogmatic hermit tyrannies when their model workers declare a preference for the decadent and bourgeois realms of the counter-revolutionary capitalist running dogs and so on. Which is why Cuba, which along with North Korea is one of the last Marxist bastions insisting that the jig is not irrecoverably up, is taking this defection so hard. This is a sad story on a number of fronts. It is tragic that young people feel compelled to abandon their homes and families in order to maximise their potential. It is wretched that the Cuban regime still drives Cuba's people to such lengths. And it is especially melancholy inasmuch as it looked for a while like baseball could have been the arena in which Cuba and the United States reimagined their torturous and ridiculous relationship. In 2016, when then-US President Barack Obama visited Havana in a bid to end decades of pointless hostility, he and Cuban leader Raul Castro sat together to watch Cuba's national team play the Tampa Bay Rays at Havana's Estadio Latinoamericano. A deal was done to allow Cuban baseballers to play legally in the US. This was axed in an act of characteristic petulance by the administration of President Donald Trump. This season's Major League Baseball playoffs began this week. When the White Sox played the Houston Astros, they fielded six Cubans between them. One way or another, they'll keep coming. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. From Cuba, we head back to the British capital now for our next item. London is grappling with a rising number of rough sleepers and also with concerns around the safety of women following the abduction and murders of Sabina Nasser and Sarah Everard, the latter by a serving police officer. For Thursday's edition of the Monaco Daily, Carlota Rebelo caught up with London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, at an event to benefit the homeless to ask him about these issues. We're doing lots of work in relation to dealing with the consequences of rough sleeping. So we're doing lots of work at making sure rough sleepers get off the streets, get the help they need and stay off the streets. The problem is, as you said, the root cause is the pipeline that's leading to people, that's leading to people becoming rough sleepers. So in the last uh, 11 years, the numbers of rough sleepers in London has more than doubled. Right? There's a reason for that. Austerity, welfare benefit changes and so forth. So although we've managed to get lots of rough sleepers off the streets, by the way, 86% of people we help stay off the streets. 
we have an in for good principle where we have wraparound support. The problem is the pipeline. And I worry with the cuts to universal credit, with the furlough scheme stopping, uh, with the increase of prices of food and so forth, with a tax increase next March, April with national insurance, it's a perfect storm to see an increase in rough sleeping. And that's why we're lobbying the government in relation to give us help to have more affordable housing, more council housing. Don't cut the universal credits by £20 a, a week. Give people the support they need so they've got work so they can be getting an income to pay rent rather than them ending up on our streets. And also we know many people across the country come to London uh, when they have adverse consequences. We've got to try and help people at root where they are so they stop coming to London and becoming rough sleepers. Now, of course, being the mayor of one of the biggest cities in the world comes with a lot of challenges. The question that everyone has been asking you is, of course, regarding the night tube. As you mentioned, you were the mayor who introduced that. What's your view on that and is the trust in London broken? Look, I think the confidence of uh, people across the country has been shattered in the police service. We can't pretend it hasn't. The serious uh, abduction, uh, rape and murder by a serving police officer. He used his position to get her into his car used his uh, police-issued handcuffs is shocking. Can't pretend it's not. I think the police, the government, myself, got to address that issue. But at the same time, we've got to do what we can to make meaningful change now. And so, as far as public transport's concerned, uh, we've got our buses running 24 hours a day, the night buses across London, CCTV and all the buses and staff. We've made sure that our tubes from central London go until 1 a.m. and start again at 5.30 a.m. Where to pause the night tube because of the pandemic around on the Friday night and Saturday night. It's personal to me because I introduced it. As soon as we're able to bring it back, we're going to bring it back. We've made sure we've now started training again new operators and, and staff because many of them had to go to daytime services because of the pandemic, uh, drivers catching the virus in the daytime services, having to self-isolate. We couldn't train new drivers because of social distancing rules. I'm hoping to have a good news announcement in the next couple of weeks because I understand uh, why Londoners, particularly women and girls, want the night tube back. The London Mayor Sadiq Khan there in a report by Monaco's Carlota Rebelo earlier this week. Stay in London now for a highlight from Monaco on design. Many of us have preconceived ideas about architectural models and their usage, and the majority of those probably revolve around their role in business or industrial settings. A new exhibition in London, however, is proving that this couldn't be further from the truth. Tempted in by a jelly version of St. Paul's Cathedral and a stop-motion animation set, we recently went along to find out more. We're here at the Building Centre in Store Street in central London to celebrate the opening of our exhibition, Shaping Space, Architectural Models Revealed. My name's Vanessa Norwood and I'm one of the curators of the exhibition, alongside Harriet Jennings and Matilde Savary and my colleague Simona Valeriani from the V&A Research Institute, who's here with me today. The exhibition we're about to walk through the space was designed by the architects Ros Barr, and the whole exhibition is like a giant maquette. It's like being inside a doll's house made of hazelnut-coloured card. And it's a very beautiful environment in which we're showing over 60 models from wonderful historical models that make you think of Napoleon being shown a design for a bedroom for Josephine to up-to-date cutting-edge technology To curate the show, we asked ourselves three questions. Why are models made? How are models made? And who are they made for? 
My name is Simona Valeriani. I'm delighted to be able to take you through, at least virtually, this space where I hope you will come in person. So when you go through the threshold, you will come into a first room where we have some very precious models, some from the collection of drawing matters that are classics of architecture, one by Le Corbusier and a model that was made to develop the Sydney Opera House with its striking sails that are on the water and also some historic model from the 19th century, Monsieur Le Duc and a very contemporary model in cork. And this already tells you one of the teams going to this exhibition, which is material. So we have cork, wood, plaster, and paper already in this room and from the late 18th century to 2021. So both material and time-wise, we have a very big variety. Going out of this entrance room, you come into a very, very big room for our comparisons. A great table in the middle, which contains over 50 models of all sorts of shapes and from landscape to small-scale models, from things that are very poetic and imaginative to models that are what you would normally expect from an architectural model where you can exactly recognise the building and all its functions. And we hope that there will be something for everyone When we started off working on this exhibition, we wanted to be slightly strict with ourselves. We wanted to give ourselves a premise with which we could really understand materials and making and the makers of models. Most designers, architects will tell you that they're making models as part of their design process. That actually the thinking through making, that hands-on approach, actually is a way of defining and then redefining ideas. So an architect like Ros Barr, who's the architect who designed the show and works in the building centre, she will use a model to test a spatial idea, to also test materials, to see how things work in relation to each other. There are also so many other types of models in the show and people will make models for a client. So the why of model making is also dependent on the who you're making models for, which was one of the other questions. And the who can be for community consultation, it can be for the client. So those questions really help define what we were looking at in the show. And the how we make models, you can really see when you come and visit the show at the building centre, is there and it's manifest in the materiality. So we've got models made of paper, we've got models made of stone, there is a model made of soap, and a model that would originally be made of jelly. We have a resin version. So those questions actually are really interrelated. One of the main points that we wanted to make was about the importance of processes, materials, and of the maker. Often models are made in collaboration between architects and model makers, specialists in the workshop, and those are the people who often are a bit forgotten and who really have the know-how in, in some cases, really helping to bring to life ideas and to visualise them and to work through problems. We wanted to concentrate on this a lot, and we have models that are cast, for example, in different materials, like plaster is the most common one, but you can cast in all sorts of materials like soap, as Vanessa was mentioning. 
And then we have models made in timber and wood, but then there are also some models that really use the materiality to communicate a message. I think the beauty of the model is that it, it's a negotiating tool, which is very democratic. We all can look at a, a model, an architectural model, and understand space. And I think for us, the interesting thing was that tools are used by many different people. They're made for many different sort of uses and for different audiences, different clients. And the model becomes a very democratic, understandable tool. It's something you can put on a table, whereas if you put down a blueprint or a plan or an elevation, they're not easily understood. I mean, as a curator, I think I would struggle to understand a plan. And I think in the show, there's a couple of really good examples where models have been used as part of the conversation between architects and curators. And I think quite often we do speak a very different language. So there's a wonderful studio, Mutt, model which was made for the bags exhibition at the VNA and that sits alongside Ros Barr's remodeling of the fashion gallery for the VNA and both of those models would have been used for curators for commissioners of space to understand the architect's intentions and I think that's the wonderful thing about architectural models they're not exclusive we can look at a model and we can understand an imagined space or a proposed space or an endangered space, or in the case of Dieter Collin, that a space that has gone needs to be remembered. So I think the beauty of the model is that it sits in between all of these different disciplines. We were really interested when we were thinking about what the exhibition should do, to think about how the digital tools can be used and are used alongside more traditional model making. And we have a series of models in the exhibition and projects that try to think about this relationship. So on the one hand, we have some Jacob's creation, and it's a model that has been made through photogrammetry. Sam Jacobs just collected all the photos he could find online of the most photographed barn in the US, which is just an Instagram phenomenon. It has nothing particularly beautiful about it, but it has become this international phenomenon. And you can find an enormous amount of material online about this. So he was interested in recreating from an existing object to an idealized object in the digital space back into a physical object. So he collected these photographs and created a digital models that was then 3D printed. And there are three versions of it. And you can see that the first two are lacking bits and pieces because this is what the photographs don't tell you because that's what people don't look at. And then it has been kind of, the, the holes have been filled in to recreate the barn in the third example, which I think it's a very interesting example. And at the same time, we have other installations and objects in the exhibition that think about this relationship between 3D digital and 3D physical. One is ScanLab's installation, which reconstructs a limbo space in which asylum seekers dwell between hope and despair, if you will. And that is a composition between real and anonymized space. And that is something that you can do with the digital and would be very difficult to do with a physical object. In the same way, forensic architecture use digital modeling to reconstruct buildings, cityscapes and events that are out of reach.
It's interesting looking at the models in the show to realize that innovation has always been there in their making. And there's something we were really conscious of in curating the exhibition is that range of historical to contemporary. So actually the oldest model in the exhibition is by architect Fontaine and it was kindly lent by Drawing Matter. And it's a, a flat image of a proposed bedroom for Josephine. The client was Napoleon, quite a famous client. And the model is cut so that when you were to hold it in your hand, the flat piece of paper would then become a 3D bedroom and the walls would fold up and the model in your hand would become the box that was the visualisation of her bedroom. And I think, as Simona said, that sort of recognising that makers and architectural models have always been innovative in their making and actually the making of them from 1804 when that model was made has always found new ways of representing 2D space and making it something sort of fantastical and 3D and easily understood is definitely a theme that runs throughout the exhibition and actually throughout the history of model making. That was Vanessa Norwood and Dr. Simona Valeriani. Shaping Space's architecture models revealed is on at the Building Centre in London until the 28th of January. Still to come here on The Curator, we head to Slovenia's capital to hear how a former sugar factory is hoping to add a little sweetness to the lives of its residents. Stay tuned. The Monaco Media Summit is back. Join our editors for a look at the brand's correspondence and titles that are shaping the media landscape and steering its future. This year, the event will also mark Monaco 24's 10th birthday, so we're putting a special focus on broadcast media. A packed afternoon of panels will once again be hosted by Monocle's founder Tyler Brulé and editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck, along with colleagues from print and radio. The session will feature insights from a stellar lineup of industry leaders, like CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward, Bild Zeitung's Deputy Editor and Chief International Reporter Paul Ronsheimer, Zeit Magazine's Christoph Amend, author and researcher Jess Henderson, Finnish TV anchor Matti Ronka, and his BBC TV and radio counterpart, Michel Hussein. Plus, there's a chance to watch a special live broadcast of the Monocle Daily on location. And after that, you can meet and talk shop with the speakers and the Monocle crew over drinks. The Monocle Media Summit is taking place on Thursday, the 14th of October, at the Hyatt Regency London, the Churchill Hotel, W1. As a Monocle listener, you can get 10% off your ticket. Head to monocle.com now and enter the promo code M24BIRTHDAY. We look forward to seeing you there. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The world's 50 best restaurants list has been released, with Copenhagen bagging the top two spots. For spinning through the top 50 with insight on what trends we're seeing in the world of eating and drinking, Monaco's Georgina Godwin was joined on the line by Adam Hyman, founder of Hospitality Community and Bulletin Code Hospitality. Adam began by explaining a little more about the top two restaurants. I was actually at the awards in Antwerp in Belgium on Tuesday evening and Denmark is definitely celebrating from these awards because you had Noma uh, 2.0, as they call it now, and Geranium coming in at one and two, both from Copenhagen. Um, 
Noma probably needs no introduction, uh, although the reason why it can take the number one spot again is because they've changed location and changed concept, so to speak. So hence why they're allowed to come in at number one again. Um, and I think, you know, judging by the reception uh, on Tuesday night that Rene Rezepi and his team got when they took to the stage to pick up their award for the best restaurant in the world, you can really understand, you know, this, this, this chef and restaurateur has been so influential over the past decade, changing the way that chefs source ingredients, foraging how they cook food um so definitely a very worthy winner um and geranium i've never been to geranium but you hear very good things about it and i think it just shows this kind of new nordic cooking and hospitality is still very much leading the way when it comes to the world's best restaurants and why do you think that is why 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 does nordic dining consistently top the list well, I think we've all kind of all been quite fascinated by uh, Nordic uh, cuisine. And I think, you know, it's the way they um, forage for the food, the way they respect the seasonality of ingredients. And, you know, it's something that was, was very clear on Tuesday night that restaurants have to be um, take, take far more pride in how sustainable they are. That's both in, you know, how they how they cook the food, how they source ingredients, um, but also on a kind of um, wider approach to just being sustainable also in terms of staffing. Um, and, and it was very much a theme across the evening on Tuesday. It's been a torrid 18 months for hospitality. So I think you could tell the way people were talking about the industry that we, we have to set a benchmark now um, and we have to do things better than maybe we've been doing before. Um, and these two restaurants are clearly doing that. Mm. Now, looking across the span of the best 50, was there anything in particular that struck you? Um, you know, I think it's 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 very interesting, this list, because and we could spend hours talking about it. And we obviously don't have the time this morning. But a lot of people say, well, what is the best? And, and you know, how do you decide upon that? And it's incredibly subjective. But I think, you know, as I mentioned, Hospitality has had a really tough two years. And I think the fact that this list, you know, it shines a spotlight on what people are doing across the globe. You know, we had 700 people in the room on Tuesday night. You had 40 of the top 50 restaurants there in person. And I think you could really tell from the energy in the room that people were just happy to be back face to face, reunited with their industry friends and peers to celebrate our amazing industry. And anything that puts a positive spotlight on that at the moment and hopefully gets customers from around the world to pack their bags, get on a train and plane to go and visit these places is a really, really great thing. You know, a couple of the restaurants that that I'm very intrigued to go and see, there's one called Lido 84, which is on the um, right on the shore of Lake Garda. And that debuts at number 15. Uh, and that's all about showcasing the uh, local produce of Lake Garda in Italy. And the other one that I'm very intrigued to see, always because I wanted to go to Colombia, is a restaurant called Leo in Bogota. Um, and that's a female chef who showcases little known Colombian ingredients. So those are the two that I'm kind of... Uh, you know, on the top of my visit list. And in terms of themes kind of running through the top restaurants in the world, is there a, a discernible one? 
Well, you know, themes is always tricky because this is a global restaurant list. So in terms of cuisine, it really does span the globe. Um, But I think it comes down to sustainability. And as I was saying before, not just about ingredients and food, but also just that whole thing of looking after your staff, staff welfare and, and, and really benchmarking your restaurant now. Adam Hyman there, founder of Code Hospitality there, speaking to Monaco's Georgina Godwin for Thursday's edition of The Globalist. And we stay in the world of food and drink for our next highlight. For this week's edition of Food Neighborhoods, one of Britain's most legendary food writers, Claudia Roden, shares a delicious recipe. I'm Claudia Roden. I started traveling around the Mediterranean to research the cuisines of the regions bordering the sea 35 years ago, all the way from Egypt, where I come from, to Spain. It was an adventure that never ended, and I didn't want it to end because that became my way of life and my joy of life as well. My interest and my role, as I saw it, was to record the traditional home cooking as exactly as I could. My last book, MED, M-E-D, is more personal. It's what I cook now for family and friends. It's remembered dishes, simple dishes, that give the most pleasure. I tried them over little dinners and around my kitchen table and felt free to make them my own. The walnut cake I'm going to give you is from Med. It's as delicious as it is simple. Pure walnut with a touch of orange, a traditional Mediterranean combination. I make it very often. It is a perfect quick tea time cake. Everyone loves it. The quantities give a thin cake, but it's enough for six and even more. But make sure the walnuts aren't stale, as they can taste rancid when they are, and they sometimes are. All you need for this is butter for greasing the cake tin, 125 grams of walnuts, two large eggs, 125 grams of caster sugar, grated zest of one orange, and icing sugar for dusting. Start by buttering a 22-centimeter round non-stick cake tin with a removable base. Put the walnuts in a food process and grind them, not too finely. Using an electric whisk, beat the eggs with the sugar until pale and thick. Add the orange zest and then fold in the walnuts until well mixed. Pour the mixture into the prepared tin and bake in a preheated 200 degrees centigrade conventional or 180 degrees fan oven for 40 minutes or until it is firm enough to the touch. Leave to cool before removing from the tin, dust with icing sugar before serving. And that's it. And it really is delicious. And we're nearing the end of the show, but let's end on a sweet note as we turn to the latest episode of Tall Stories. As for this week's show, we visited a new art gallery which is built in a derelict sugar refinery and forms part of a riverside revival going on in Slovenia's capital. Monaco's Balkan correspondent Guy Delaunay has this report. (laughs) 
Visitors to Ljubljana will often take a walk along the Ljubljanica River and they can enjoy all the cafes and restaurants, the central market and the architectural trademarks of the city's signature architect, Jorge Plechnik. But many of those visitors will stop when they get to Zmyski Most, the Dragon Bridge. That's where the chocolate box pretty part of the river gives way to something a bit more gritty. Of course, being Ljubljana, we're not talking about smoking chimneys and clanking machinery, but we do have some reminders of the times when you could find industry at the heart of the city. Put it this way, you won't find anyone playing jaunty tunes on an accordion here. And thank goodness for that. But the walk along this stretch of riverside is perfectly fine. There are very few tourists and some extremely interesting sights. Over to the left, you'll see the former Rog bicycle factory. That was the heart of Yugoslavia's bike-building industry. But it didn't survive Slovenia's independence in the 1990s. For the following couple of decades, it was squatted by various counterculture and artistic groups. Then about 18 months ago, Ljubljana municipality and the police combined to clear it out. And now you can see that reconstruction work is underway. Just beyond that, you'll see the split-level Fabiani Bridge, the lower part of which is much loved by the city's skateboarders. And beyond that, Chukrana, the sugar factory. Just three years ago, this was a derelict industrial building, an ugly and little-loved hulk on the riverside. Now... It's been completely revived, a fresh cream facade brightening up the monolithic, almost featureless face which it presents to the river. Its dozens of windows look disproportionately small compared to the vast expanse of the facade. You can count seven windows from the ground floor to the roofline, which gives some indication of how imposing this structure appears. Around the other side, there's a bit more variety. An entrance hall breaks the monotony of the facade, and in front of it, there's a small courtyard with stairs rising up to make a miniature amphitheatre. But I'm getting ahead of myself because this story starts in the 1820s when Slovenia was part of the Habsburg Empire and it seemed that Ljubljana was well-placed to serve sweet-toothed subjects by opening a sugar refinery. For the best part of three decades, the facility went from strength to strength, expanding upwards and outwards and proving highly profitable for its owners as it sold sugar and syrup to Hungary and across the Balkans. But all that came to a sudden end in 1858, when fire swept through the building. The sugar factory was effectively destroyed, and that was the end of the refinery. Some reconstruction saw a state-owned tobacco factory take its place before another fire in the 1870s put paid to that enterprise. After that... Chukrana fell into a long, slow decline. It served as living quarters for the Austro-Hungarian military and cheap housing for Slovenian cultural figures. By the time of Tito's Yugoslavia, it was offering a home to people designated as socially disadvantaged and temporary accommodation to construction workers. But as Slovenia declared its independence in 1991, Chukrana was in a sorry state. Plans to turn it into a shopping centre came to nothing and its entrances and ground floor windows were blocked up to prevent squatting after a series of fires. And for the next quarter of a century, Chukrana was a rotting riverside hulk, offering nothing to Ljubljana or its people. 
That finally started to change three years ago when the city took full possession of the site and started work on turning it into a gallery and arts centre. The process took three years and just under 25 million euros. And what you see today is a hybrid of a 19th century industrial building and 21st century arts centre because the main building was completely gutted. The innards were replaced with a multi-storey gallery suspended inside the walls of the original structure. So when you're browsing one of these galleries, you're effectively inside a white cube, inside the suspended white cube, which is a neat trick if you think about it. The ground floor looks up to the white cube and it's a huge exhibition space in its own right. At the moment, it's dominated by a massive Ernesto Neto installation. You get the feeling that the Chukrana Gallery hasn't quite worked out what it wants to be yet, but its very existence is bringing life back to this part of the river, and it certainly helps to have an extremely attractive cafe bar adjacent to the courtyard with a stage for performances. This should be a great addition to Ljubljana's collection of performance venues. It may be that this part of the river will never form part of the tourist trail, but Ljubljana's probably wouldn't be too unhappy about that, especially as now they have the sugar factory to add a little sweetness to their cultural lives. There was Monaco's Balkan correspondent Guy Deloney there. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Sanimpi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thank you for listening.